Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Fridays for the weekly update here at JM and the AM. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM and the AM. Good, and thank you, and welcome back to you. Thank you very much. Good I did to have you back in one piece. I <laughs> a rare or two, or <laughs> no, it's one. Thank God. <laughs> I did check out the aquarium at the Dubai Mall, right up my alley. By the way, it was really beautiful. And the tree- and it was all that I said it would be. Right? Oh yes, you said it would be a beautiful city. You said it's a futuristic city. You said the skylines are multiple and beautiful, and all of that is true. I gotta. I, I still can't get over it. I cannot get over what it looks like, and I can't get over the fact that I mentioned this a couple of times during the trip. That you know, we talk about New York being the center of the world, or the capital of the world has all these distinctions. Um, I, I don't know what Hong Kong was like, and I'm not sure what you know what other countries in that part of the world uh, had enjoyed over the centuries in terms of their place among the uh, the list of um, you know important places to visit and fascinating places to visit. But this one has the potential, and you might argue it's there already, to be such a massive tourist attraction and so attractive to to uh, residents from other countries moving there, uh, uh, establishing business interests there. I mean, they seem to have everything going for them over there, frankly. Yeah, the quality of life is good. It's the one country amongst the Arab countries who recently polled where the young people want to stay uh, and not the majority uh, wanting to leave, as was expressed by in all the other countries. Wow. And they are, you know, they're forward-looking. Saudi Arabia's uh, crown prince is also trying to do where they're looking to the day when they w- will not be able to rely on oil income. Uh, you know, their resources are depleting. The the um, move towards alternative uh, fuels will, of course, keep the price of low oil low, and therefore they are looking to diversify, and they see Israel as a model for that, that Israel with such limited resources until the recent discoveries, even more limited, you know, in terms of the uh, oil and gas, even more limited, and yet they became energy independent, water independent, things that are vital and critical to build an agricultural expertise that they have. And they see it as very attractive. And they see the the shift that the one country that they hope they can rely on, if God forbid something happens with Iran, they don't don't trust the West today. They trust uh, that Israel has no choice because it's, it's permanent. What a change. What a geopolitical change. Just unbelievable. And um, every Israeli we spoke with, every Jew we spoke with, and every Arab we spoke with, they and, and some of them, I believe, I conjecture, were Biden supporters. Every one of them gave credit to one man, and that was the President of the United States, Donald Trump. And if you would have seen the reaction and heard the reaction, I don't know how much of the programming you heard, but if you would have heard the, that, 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 that those number of people state how President Trump's responsible for all this, and some of them saying it never would have happened if not for him, meaning that you know just naturally you'd think eventually Israel and the UAE would be together. They argued no, that it would never happen. If you would have heard this, you, 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 have, you would have to say to yourself that the media in the United States and around the world were so lacking in the enthusiastic response that President Trump should have gotten from them when the deal went down? I think, uh, the first of all, you know, I'm in touch with people there, and I've been to all these countries uh, often, and it's absolutely true. You know, they do look to the shift that they felt America was disengaging, and, and for them that's disastrous. They also know that the sanctions regime really made a difference and really brought Iran to its knees economically, even if it didn't stop the nuclear program, we don't know how much more advanced it would have been. 
military capacities. He, they are now in need of about $70 billion in terms of debts and, and immediate, uh, I think, $20 billion he owes in, in needs for the Houthis, the um, Hezbollah, for their other terrorist uh, entities and, and uh, clients, as well as for their domestic needs, tens of billions of dollars immediately because the economy is in such ruins. So they they look at all of this and they say, Look, the United States took a stand, withdrew from the JCPOA, which people could debate, but you can't debate the impact that the sanctions have had, and hopefully they will not all be removed. We know that, that some will be, and whatever, there, there shouldn't be a rush back. I don't think that the Iranians are going to make it easy for them uh, to reestablish uh, the, the agreement of 2015 because they are demanding compensation, and, and they have their own internal calculus with the election coming up in May and the um, hardliners pressing the agenda very hard. So they're, you know, they have their own... Yeah. You know, but now we look at Morocco, yeah. and we see that... that you know, it's spreading, regardless of, of some of the pressures and things that have been brought to bear. There are other countries that are in discussion. And it w- and Morocco doubles because of, I've talked often about the uh, Mediterranean initiative that we initiated with Greece and Cyprus, Israel, etc. And now other countries have joined. Egypt is part of it, and Bulgaria, Romania, Malta, others. Now, with Morocco having crossed the threshold of relations with Israel, could become part. So it would be an anchor in North Africa with Egypt and Israel being the hub, and you have the Gulf and all of the Mediterranean coming together. They could become islands of peace in in the world and against the Islamists and the extremists in the region. Unbelievable. The potential is so great. Unbelievable. And people shouldn't expect miracles. It means that they still will vote sometimes. They will still say some things. There will be people, individuals who will say things. Yeah, we saw it. By the way, we saw saw the UAE's reaction to what happened with the scientists in Iran. I mean, that was, you know, typical. Uh, They they, they demanded restraint for everybody, etc. And they're going to make public statements that either appeal to both or sometimes won't be that friendly to Israel. Morocco's a story of the day. We'll get to it. I want to wrap up the story of yesterday for a minute if I can. And I, I turn to your expertise when it comes to economics and politics on this. First of all, the the income tax in in the in the UAE is zero. I mean, there is no income tax. There's barely a sales tax, frankly. That's what they pay you. <laughs> <laughs> barely a sales tax. And I say this because, I, look, I know that, you know, when, it's like my late mother used to say, when you have money, it's amazing what you could do. Now, I understand. I understand there's a tremendous amount of money there, and they're making this really um, uh, um, uh, shift of awareness from oil to tourism and other industries and high-tech, obviously, and I get all that, and they're doing it very well. But on the economic side, not that I need you to, you know, to, to, to you know, support Ronald Reagan here and all his theories, but uh, there is something when you have a free market like that and the country encourages you to build business and they tax you so little. They expect you know so little in return. And again, I know it's not realistic in some cases for other countries around the world, including ours, to act that way. But there is something to it economically, and it's such, such an attraction to people around the world to be in that type of economic atmosphere. That's the first thing. The second thing is the politically, and I hope you'll address this. The You, you know what it's like. You know enough about history. When there's a lot of money available, it usually leads to to governments being corrupt, 
keeping all the money for themselves and letting people live homeless in the streets. And you know I'm exaggerating, but you get my point. And here they're doing the exact opposite. They're trying their hardest to assist people in buying homes, buying cars, having decent salaries, even people with low-level jobs, keeping everybody employed, keeping the streets clean. It's exactly the opposite attitude of, of, of the way most dictatorial regimes have acted you know, for centuries. And I was wondering if you could comment on that. That's a real agenda. Uh, so first of all, the UAE is a unique circumstance, although you can look at Singapore, you look at some of the successful places where you have um, a more democratic, less democratic, but this approach where business encouraged, facilitated, you, you cut the red tape, you, you offer them as hubs what Hong Kong was, other right. places, to, and UAE certainly sees itself in, in that way. I, I, Israel does to a degree, but it, it doesn't implement it, unfortunately, in the same way. Uh, so uh, where bureaucracy and red tape are, unfortunately, abundant. So first of all, the UAE, only about 10% of the people are Emiratis. 90% are from other countries and workers and stuff. Uh, not everybody votes. Not everybody uh, has a say. They all benefit from the system as it as it is structured, but there is still exploitation, and that that is alleged uh, from time to time. But it is truly remarkable, and more and more these people are getting the benefits. They they uh, live good lives. That's why they come from everywhere to work there, Pakistan, all over the India, other places. Uh, but it creates a, a, a stratified uh, a society, and you have to think that this, there's always the potential that they can turn on, on the government when you're when it's the preponderant part of the population. So the government has to be alert all the time right. to Iranian efforts to undermine them and others to to, to exploit them. Uh, I think that they have an enlightened approach, education, other things. The, the universities there are just remarkable, and I'm sure you saw some of the buildings, some of the amazing oh. facilities, and bringing academics and linking up with American universities. Um, so, you know, the, there are different sides to the picture. There are always allegations of corruption whenever you have an absolute society, and anybody, and and when you have royal families, like extended ones in Saudi Arabia and others, who will then jump to any opportunity to criticize out of jealousy, out of um, other motivations that they have. But, you know, the, these countries are trying to move in the right direction. They're looking to modernize the societies. They institute reforms. But we can't expect them to become America overnight. They're not going to become, you know, all full democracies because the system can't adjust that quickly. So people should be a little patient when it comes to some of these countries. We should press the human rights agenda. We should press freedom and and at the same time help build them up and help them move in that direction. I remember when Sisi, you know, when the United States backed Morsi against, uh, you know, the head of the Muslim Brotherhood, mm-hmm. just think of where we would be today had that succeeded. So we should be helping the people move the governments in the right direction, be supportive, have a presence there, a clear presence, and send clear messages to the enemies of the United States and of these countries like Iran and Turkey today. Such an important point. And by the way, I mentioned to you off the air that the the reaction to Jews and Israelis being there was extremely positive. I hope that lasts. I mean, it was extremely positive and people very excited to meet Jews and to meet people from Israel because there were so many there for that conference on high tech, which was dominating the uh, the scene in Dubai. And now we move over to Morocco. Again, same example. I, I have to assume, and you'll tell us, but I have to assume that, you know, the, the impetus for this deal uh, was fear of Iran and economics. Uh, so many 
countries in that region of the world, as you know historically, were aided by the Jewish communities in building their economies for centuries. And is it possible that now Morocco, like other uh, uh, countries in Africa and the Persian Gulf, are realizing that if there would be an influx of Jews, in this case Israel, uh, that the economic prospects for the country could only improve? Well, some of them have said those things, but the king, first of all, to his credit, like his father, really has always reached out to the Jewish community there, protected them during World War II, uh, those who were citizens, then when the Vichy French government and the forces arrived in Morocco, Tunisia, other countries, um, you know, there were concentration camps in North Africa that people don't know about, The um, but the history of, of Moroccan Jewry is, um, is a mixed one in, in the sense that they had so many centuries, maybe going back to the, the post-First Temple period, they claim, and many in Morocco look at the Jews as an integral part of the society, that they... Uh, their words, their their concepts have so integrated into life, and especially in the Atlas Mountains and other places, the Berbers claim uh, also being of Jewish descent. Uh, so merchants then came to these various places in the Mediterranean, going back to the time of the uh, of the Hurimayshani, but even some say before that. And they, so the, there's a long history, but in Morocco in particular, more than any other country, is it extolled because of His Majesty's work? I mean, he instituted Holocaust education in their curricula. They, they've eliminated anti-Semitism in many of their textbooks. Other countries, UAE, Saudi Arabia, others are doing the same. Egypt, uh, moving that direction as well. And the... Um, uh, so the the stories of you know the king paid for the restoration of hundreds of Jewish cemeteries. If you visit them, it's unbelievable. In the United States, we can't even contemplate it. I went to a cemetery recently, and you saw oh, gravestones over and uh, really in disrepair. There, everyone was whitewashed, painted, fixed, clean. The workers came in and overseen by Serge Verdugo, the, the president of the community. Uh, uh, but it was His Majesty who really uh, organized it, and there are there are many other uh, elements to seeing this the unique relationship and the status of Jews in, in Morocco. And when, when on Shabbos at night, when I walked from the shul to somebody's home, and it was half an hour walk, and we walked on the streets. Uh, people would yell Shabbat Shalom. Now, it's true, we had some security walking with us, but they they were not visible. So why did they lose so many Jews in the 40s and 50s, simply because Jews wanted to move to Israel? Well, no, but you also have a reality, which is what I was coming to, that in polling and stuff, you still see high anti-Israel numbers, high numbers that was resentment against Jews. The Muslim Brotherhood is very active there. Iran is very active, as you pointed out. But the real issue that, that swung this, I think, was the recognition by the United States of um, uh, of uh, Moroccan territorial uh, the territorial integrity of Western Sahara as part of Morocco, and Morocco has long sought a referendum there. They want to give them some autonomy, but they believe it's part of um, of Morocco. And when the Spanish pulled out, you know, the, in 1975, the war started there. The Polisario, backed by Algeria and others, have been fighting against um, Moroccan troops, and and 
it's a very sensitive issue there. You know, they talk about occupied territory, um, and some said that, you know, Israel and Morocco traded occupied territory recognitions. Uh, but the fact is that this is long overdue. The, this is the, the, the Polisario should not be in the interest, are not in the interest of the West, and certainly want to undermine Morocco, which is an ally and has been steadfast. Look at its geopolitical position on the in North Africa, but also right in the edge of Europe. Um, it's, their role is very important. They've, they have a history since 1777 of being pro-American. They sent an ambassador, and, and, and interesting, there were many Jewish ambassadors to uh, to Morocco and always welcomed and, and treated well. The Jewish community there, 5,000 functions with full uh, rights, full uh, autonomy in the sense of the synagogues there, other community institutions. Uh, and most of all, you know, I got the highest civilian award that the, that the country gives the king was presenting at a ceremony, and I found out it's a huge ceremony. So I sent somebody to ask him that, you know, I wear a yarmulke. Does that create a problem, et cetera? And he answered, you do what you do. Hmm. And Muslim Brotherhood was there, and the next day they had, and he, everybody was given the award, and then they called me up. There's 5,000 people there. It's a huge thing. It's, it's shown all over the country. So he wasn't doing this in the corner of a palace. And I was the only one when he walked up. He stuck out his hand to shake my hand in front of the cameras. And there was like this gasp because everybody else kisses his sleeve or his uh, collar. And and he personally put the medals on it. He thanked me for some things we had done and then gave me some messages and, but stood there talking to me on a nationally televised thing where everybody else got five seconds, you know, and they moved on. And he did it, he does it demonstratively. And the next day, the Muslim Brotherhood put out headlines saying that the king had honored a Zionist murderer, you know, terrorist, meaning me. Yeah, uh, I, and, I get it. <laughs> and he said, look, I know what they're going to do. Believe me, don't worry about it. It's okay. It's good for them. Let them stew in it. And he does remarkable things. You know, he, he sent for Friday night. He said, you're my guest for Shabbat. And I said, but I'm going to somebody already. It's arranged. He said, no, you were the guest of the king for Shabbat. And Friday, a truck pulled up to these people's home, and these huge trays of delicacies came out, all with hashgacha, all done specially for it. He, he does amazing things. I'm telling you, people don't know. He's been promoting Holocaust education. He endorsed the Aladdin Project. So it's been incremental. It's a big leap for them. I'm sure there will be still a lot of backlash in all of these countries. The polls still show very strong negative things until now, for the first time, we see more than 40% in Saudi Arabia supporting the initiatives with Israel, still a majority against, but going. it's a triple the number from five months ago or four months ago. UAE, a positive majority, and most of the other countries still a majority negative. But the, the numbers are shrinking. The negatives and the positives are going up. It will be incremental. So don't look for immediate things. Don't start judging every time somebody says something. You have to look at this in the broader context. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSegal.com and the NachumSegal Network, and of course, the beloved NSNF. All right, so we did the politics. We did the history. We did the economics. But bottom line now, bottom line, would this have happened if not for Morocco's fear of Iran? It's, um, well, that's a factor everywhere, and it, it is real. People don't associate Iran with Morocco, but the fact is that they have tried to undermine the regime, the government. They, you know, they tried to, to 
bring in the extremist ideology there as well as everywhere else. It, it, Morocco has been working to fight them in Africa, in other countries, supporting them economically and in other ways. The king has traveled around Africa frequently uh, for this purpose. Uh, unfortunately, the Europeans and others have sort of abandoned all these responsibilities, even though they, they claim that these are Francophone countries or they have the special uh, relationships there. The um, the Morocco, the Iran factor is very strong, but the Turkish factor has become increasingly strong, and I've talked forever about it on the show, warning for years that this is going to be the case. Now it's the dual threat that they see. Uh, but they're, they're, uh, for them, I think the big prize, like for Sudan to get off the terrorism list and get this aid, for them it is the recognition of the Sahara. That's a very big thing for them. Americans don't even know about Sahara. They don't understand the Polisario, who are backed by engaging terrorist attacks, who are backed by Algeria and others. But that's very big for them. Hmm, interesting. Uh, and can there be other neighbors of uh, of Morocco that will join in? I mean, you mentioned there's a possible alliance with Egypt, and uh, Israel will have uh, you know a, a good relations with uh, with that side of the world, so to speak, or that side of Israel. I mean, could there be even others that that would join in in peace agreements with Israel from that region? I think there are other Muslim countries that uh, will, because if they see the benefit, and that's why we have to make sure that investments and other things that people see in educational exchanges, all sorts of things that can open up the countries. Again, it's a gradual process. It's not you know, flipping a switch and all of a sudden everything right. is going to be light. You know that in Jordan and Egypt still the right. numbers are, it's a cold piece, it's a heavy numbers, but you see breaches there I as mean, well where more and more are speaking out. For we, we spoke with guests in the UAE who thought Saudi Arabia is within the next six months. Do you think that's that's too crazy a prediction? Well, they have internal considerations. One is that the king is against it, and uh, they want to see progress on the Palestinian front. But I think that the, the crown prince has a vision. Uh, he wants to benefit from Israeli technology. He believes that the two countries have much to offer each other, and certainly on, on the security front. Uh, one of the things is, you know, he's building this huge city from Aqaba in Jordan all, that will go all the way to their other side uh, on the border with Egypt. Now think on the Mediterranean that you could have cruise ships going from Aqaba to Israel to Sharm el-Sheikh to other places to, to Saudi Arabia. You could have direct commerce across there. So Saudi Arabia becomes even closer. You know, now UAE is about three hours or so from Israel. And with direct flights to Morocco, what was could have been a 10, 11-hour, 12-hour trip turns into a three, three-and-a-half-hour trip also. And this is revolutionary, and the overflight rights are very important that they can fly over Saudi Arabia, means Israeli airlines, means that they get to the Far East, hours faster, which facilitates commerce and trade and, and uh, opens up Israel as another hub for people coming from the Far East, going to Europe, as uh, UAE and other places served for hundreds and hundreds of years as the waypoint, including for many Jewish businessmen yep. from Europe going to the Far East. Unbelievable. The whole thing is just unbelievable. Um, let's go to a couple of other uh, a couple other. Uh, uh, questions about uh, what's happening in this world. Uh, do you think that a President Biden will help accelerate the Saudi Arabian peace, or do you fear that it might slow things up? 
Well, I think the Saudis and others uh, will wait and see. They, they will want to know whether this will be just a reprise of some previous administrations or will they have their own approach, which I think they will. They have people there who, who get it, but they've also said that they're going to the administration, uh, incoming administration uh, um, prospects, that they will focus on more on human rights in Saudi Arabia, Egypt, other countries, which is always of concern, um, although that should be on the agenda and we should be promoting it, but the question is, is how you prioritize it, what kind of overall relationships will there be. You know, this week they, they approved the arms sale by a very close vote, in, in two vote differences in the Senate to the arms sales of the F-35s to the UAE. Uh, now, the question is, what happens with this massive arm package to, to Saudi Arabia and other um Involvements. So, number one, they want to see America engaged. They want to know that America is going to be there, America's physical presence, our aircraft carriers, others, and not that we withdraw again from the region. Two, that we have a long-term commitment and help economically, we help otherwise and politically to shore them up, and but stand against Iran and Turkey and the aggressiveness and the Islamist um, uh, threats to these regimes. So they're going to look for all of these signs right. to get a sense. I mean, they know Jake Sullivan, they know um, um, Blinken, Tony Blinken, and both of them know the region, know the, these issues extremely well. Uh, so we should give them a chance. We have to see what they're, they're going to do. I do not think they're going to be able to dismantle the whole sanctions regime right away. As some said, you know, they're just going to sign everything off. There are hundreds and hundreds of them, and it gives them leverage. They should blame the uh, the Trump administration for, you know, for it, but they should um, uh, take advantage. Take advantage exactly of this leverage. Which uh, puts them in a better position. We know that it, the economic pressures work, and it, and with the election coming up in in Iran, they're very anxious to try and turn their economy around before that, because the unemployment, the satisfaction, you know, the the um, ethnic minorities who make up a majority of the country are very unrestful and very bad conditions, uh, and COVID hit them very hard, hit Iran very hard. So there is a unique opportunity to to try and exploit it. And, of course, Russia and China will be working with them and to counter any uh, American thing. So they, they want now to be more multilateral, more internationalist in their orientation. We'll see how it plays out. What do we know about incoming Secretary of Defense General Lloyd Austin? So he was the head of CENTCOM, the Central Command. He, Israel was not part of the Central Command because then it was mostly the Arab countries and they didn't want Israel. Uh, it looks like, and and there has been a slow move over years, the last couple of years, to bring Israel into CENTCOM. Uh, and uh, General Austin did have uh, visit Israel and had some negotiations, but there isn't an, uh, a deep history. Um, but uh, Israeli generals and others have said uh, favorable comments about his role at the time. So I think we, we, I mean, it was a surprise because many people thought it was Michel Flournoy, Flournoy would get it, but this was, um, uh, you know, this was the choice, and, and there are reasons, internal political reasons, they believe why uh, it was made. Um, but people who worked with him and others respect him. By the way, on the UAE, we forgot to, I forgot to mention that uh, he talked about investments and, and opportunities. Um, the royal family purchased half of Beitar Yerushalayim, the, the the team in Israel, and the, the people in Israel are not happy that a, uh, a member of the royal family, right? Member of the royal not family. the whole royal family, right. 
but the but there are people who who are unhappy. I don't think that this represents a security threat to Israel. Um, they might be able to buy some better players in the process too. <laughs> <laughs> but the um, but it's unbelievable. Uh, but it's a message. But yeah. this is such a strong message to the Amcha in both countries that we should see it as a positive. It's not the same thing as when you sell the port of Haifa or you, you know, bring in others. You know, there are other industries which are much more sensitive and which are more governed. I, I don't think that this represents any kind of uh, of a security threat or just a financial benefit to, right. to the sports in Israel. All right, let's spend a couple of minutes on the election, this time in Israel. All right, so Gidon Saar is now making his own party. Is that the, the bottom line? That's what it seems. He resigned from Likud, and he's working and ready. He seems to be, the whole issue seems to have fizzled a little bit from the initial excitement, and there's a lot of speculation about who will go with him. Will Yalom, Eisenkot, others, Hauser, um, ex- members of uh, Blue and White, and others join him. Uh, some have already committed, some have, have uh, speculated. Uh, but we know that in Israel there's a history with third parties, and they offer an yeah. open or flash in the pants. Don't, don't they win. get it? Don't they see it? Don't they understand it, that they usually are not successful? Well, each, but each circumstance it, it, they believe is unique, and this scene is unique, that Netanyahu has been there longer than any prime minister, that there's uh, all these demonstrations, he has his legal problems, he has other things, so he, that they see him as vulnerable. But, you know, you have to beat him with somebody who can amass a larger number, and, and he has proven himself, Netanyahu, to be a brilliant strategist uh, and political operative uh, and theoretician. And he has a record to stand on that uh, even even they're dealing with COVID, uh, where he was criticized. But the fact is that it wasn't worse than everywhere else. Nobody did a great job, uh, and they have mobilized. They, they are now inoculating a lot of people. Uh, even though the the numbers still are very troublesome there, and they may likely go into some sort of restrictions uh, after this week, but he, he, Netanyahu um, has uh, dissenters within the party, so you divide it up, and he also sees Bennett's number increasing. Bennett has attacked the the uh, mention of the uh, new cabinet. It did. It, it is likely to be fast tracked. You know, you need three hearings, so in between it goes back to committee, then it comes out again, and you read it, they go back and forth, um, and they want to, to move it because to get an election, you need 30, uh, 90 days' notice, three, four months. So we're talking about Pesach time, which means it probably goes then into May uh, for an election, and having this period of uncertainty Another. is not great. So I think that Gantz, because he his political career could be very diminished or even eliminated, um, has an incentive to try and reach an accord if he can. And I think Netanyahu certainly does, and that they would, given the numbers and the polling, which again shifts very quickly in Israel, uh, I think that they will still try and reach an agreement to have a budget by December 23rd. And finally, it seems that Prime Minister Netanyahu will be among the first uh, of the world leaders to have to actually get the vaccine. I mean, that could happen this week. Yes, they're, they're, they're moving fast. Their plane arrived with the shipments. He went to visit it, to, to greet the plane. Uh, they, the, all the vaccines were making Aliyah, were uh, <laughs> some special status. I mean, they, in three months, they, three, four months, the majority of Israel could be vaccinated if they're on track. Am I right? Or is that, is that you know? They have ordered and placed orders with, with a bunch of different companies uh, for different vaccines to be able to accommodate everybody as quickly as possible. It's not likely that in that short a period uh, you're going to do it. Uh, 
you know, even half the population, like by Pesach, you can't half, get it. half the population by Pesach could be possible because they have the army will be enlisted. They will, and that would help a lot, right? I mean, once you have half, I mean, you're you're on the road to hopefully immunizing most of the country. Right, but it, I think they it, somebody said it's only a really you'll see the results when it gets to seventy five, eighty percent, and even more, and especially with young people because of their interactions. Um, right. But you can start cutting it back, and, and the severity now it seems to be much more severe again. That the the numbers in ICUs is has increased um, a great deal too. So you know, for a while it was seen as mild, and still most cases are relatively mild. mild. But the overall numbers in many places they're running out of emergency room beds. Big cities, Baltimore, others uh, have now shortages of of uh, beds to accommodate people. Yeah. And it's, uh, that's, you know, pretty scary when you, you realize it. And We're hopefully close, but it's not going away yet. Uh, and all the news that we've discussed, uh, and most of the news we discussed in this uh, segment, uh, when you think about the fact that today's the first day of Hanukkah and what Hanukkah represents for the Jewish people, both past, present, and future, it's, the whole thing is amazing, and people need to sometimes just step back. I always say, you know, tell the children and grandchildren, as you emphasize as well, uh, but the, we're living in historic times. That's why I felt there, by the way, that li- literally living through important historic times. And everyone has to understand just how significant this period is. And we see the fulfillment of Rabbi Biyad Ma'atim, Tamein Biyad Tahorim, Rishon Biyad Tzadikim, that this tiny little country today dominates the region. Unbelievable. That, that you think about it, it's the few overcoming the many, the righteous overcoming the wicked. What would our look, look at how what Iran and the others, how they're <laughs> suffering. They're still expanding. They're building new bases all the way down the Red Sea, and, and uh, they're fighting all over. Uh, Israel faces still serious challenges, but we have to look at the brachot, the, the, all the blessings that we have, what, that Israel has had, the fact that you have all these countries coming into line, and thanks to the efforts of the administration and, and uh, led by the president and others who, who engaged in it, um, and hopefully many more will, will come on board. There are other countries, Oman, Bahrain, uh, um, Oman and African countries, Muslim African countries, that we know are, are uh, anxious to, to also establish relations. But the American role there is very important in the messages that are sent so we have to stand in support and help the Congress, help uh, the administrations, and, and work with all of them to make sure that this continues. And past administrations have, have always, at least I was always under the impression, moved forward by doing what's best for the country. I, I hope the incoming administration does not make it a point to simply prove that they, to simply try to prove that their predecessors were correct and that, in fact, they do what's best for the future of the United States and its allies than just, you know, be, be stubborn in all of this trying to prove that or trying to emphasize that what their predecessors had done was the right move. And I, I think it's just so much of that now in our political scene in the United States. I hope it doesn't happen this time around. I, I, I give them more credit. I know some of these people, they, they, it's true that many of them really believe that the JCPOA is the right approach and that involving the Europeans, that even when you do sanctions, if you don't have them complete, then it doesn't really uh, work and it didn't stop Iran. Uh, Iran's activities in South America right now, you know, with the Maduro victory, which I know we don't have time to go into, but maybe next week the, 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 um, 
people don't pay attention to these things, but we're seeing uh, the Venezuela, Bolivia, Nicaragua, Cuba access recreated. That Zarif went on a tour there of, of a number of these countries. They're they're renewing arms sales. They are uh, playing an increasing role, and in the the positive outcome of some of the elections are being reversed. So this is and so this is not far away from our shores. So, the, so I hope that people will realize that uh, administration experts will come in and realize what the threat, real threat is, and the same about Turkey's uh, threat, and that the only way you get something is to show consistency and strength. doesn't mean obstinacy. It doesn't mean that there can't be new vision and new approaches and try whatever. But we have to show our allies that we're going to be with them. We have to show the, our enemies that we're going to be standing against them yeah. very strongly. Uh, thank you, Malcolm. Have a wonderful Shabbos Hanukkah. Shabbat Shalom and happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah to everyone. Look at the lights. Take inspiration from it. Good days are ahead. Amen to that. We're living through them, and it's pretty amazing. Malcolm Holine is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Fridays, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time with a weekly update here at JM in the AM.